Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, it is May 15th of 2014. Tonight, our guest is Wendy McIntyre, who will be talking about Jared's Law, which is uh, some regulations that uh, she wants to propose to regulate sober living facilities, which are a big problem these days. It's a lot, a lot of problems in sober living facilities, not just these days, but from the very outset. Uh, before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Uh, we're going to bring, bring our guest, Wendy McIntyre, on right now. How are you doing this evening, Wendy? I'm doing absolutely wonderful. Thanks for asking. Well, it's great to well, have I, you on. It's great to have you on the show. Uh, tell us a little bit about what is Jared's Law. Who is Jared? How did you get involved in this? Uh, your personal story. Great. Well, actually, it was 33 years ago to the minute that Jared was born. It was his birthday, and I remember waddling on in with a pillow in between my legs, thinking I was going to drop this child on his head. But sure enough, I, I, I walked in at 10 minutes to 5, and he was born and one minute after 5. And uh, I fell in love with him. He was an amazing young man. He was, um, he had a nickname, the Gentle Giant. He grew to be very tall. He was about 6'2". And... Um, he was a really sweet little boy, and he grew into an amazing young man and an athlete. Um, he was um, doing wonderful in school. And when he was a child, I really didn't have much issues with Jared. Um, it was actually my, my younger daughter who I had struggles with, and it had to do with drugs. Um, but at that point in time, um, my daughter was a juvenile, and I was 100% responsible for her and in many, many ways. And at that time, and this was uh, pre-2000, I really recall reaching out for the right kind of support for my kids. And as a, as a parent in crisis, it's a, it's a challenging situation. You, you really are unaware of which road to go down who to call, and I recall doing everything I knew I could. And that really means for me, um, with her at that stage of the game, was get her to a place where her fire can be extinguished. She was on fire. So it was very easy for me to get her into treatment, get her into sober living, getting her and guiding her down a pathway. <clears throat> Jared, on the other hand, was quite different. He was this straight-A ice hockey player. He played through the United States and Canada, was on the Junior Kings, the Junior Ducks. And by 20, he had gotten his own apartment, had a full-time job, bought his own truck, had insurance. From the outside, Jared looked like he really had it going on. And um, it was one day when he was 20 years old 
that my daughter came over and and shared with me the truth that Jared was struggling with a heroin addiction, and it really blew my mind because you know I I was shocked. I was really 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 shocked. It was something that I just was it was at that time um, I just knew I had to take action, so I did, and we ended up in emergency room, and we ended up in a treatment facility. And in that whole process, it was discovered that, no, actually, Jared doesn't have insurance. He wasn't really going to work full-time. He was going to work part-time and doing heroin the other time. He was not at work. So thus began my new journey of trying to save my kid's life. But I now was Mm -hmm. in a whole different ballgame. Now, Mm -hmm. Jared's 20 years old. He was an adult. Mm -hmm. There was very little that I really believed that I could do, and the guidance that I got was, you know, at the time, was really all that you could give, which was, you know, you could raise his bottom by this, that, or the other. And I really did try to do that. At the time, in California, there was this proposition, Proposition 36, that instead of putting people in jail, they would, they would give them the opportunity to go through treatment. And through Jared's misdeeds behind drugs, uh, he ended up in front of a judge who court-ordered him into treatment. Unfortunately, Jared decided, you know, I'm not really, really ready for treatment. I'm going to find this sober living home called the Safe House, and I'm going to live there. And he walked into a California court and said, you know what, Judge, I've got it under control. I got a job. I'm sober. And they took one look at him and said, okay, great. We don't have to pay for your treatment. You know, move right along. But he was, in fact, court ordered to a place called the Safe House. And what really is sad about the situation is that back in early 2000, there weren't cell phones. There weren't the kind of devices that people have that, you know, can give them instant access to information. So I recall printing out for Jared, you know, a folder and handing it to him of resources and all these sober living homes that I had checked out and had spoken to because I was no stranger to danger and I was willing to, I was willing to pay for sober living. I was willing to pay for treatment. I knew what I was willing to do and what I wasn't willing to do to, to love my kid. Nevertheless, I contacted the safe house. I spoke to the owner. And he gave me these assurances. And the assurances are pretty standard. It's very mm-hmm. simple for your $600 a month in his case and um, $40,000 a month in some other cases. You get a, you're, in essence, paying for a second set of eyes. <clears throat> there's rules, but there's a bilateral contract where the person who signs it says, I'm not going to use, I'm going to go get a job. And they agree to certain things. And the people who are offering these services, they also make an agreement. And that agreement is is that we're going to maintain a drug-free environment. So that's sort of how it was set up. And I believe that. Mm -hmm. So as it Mm -hmm. turns out, Jared was... uh, Last time I saw Jared was on Thanksgiving 2004. And I remember it was, a, it was a time that was really interesting because, you know, I had spent Tuesdays with Jared. That was, my, that was the highlight of my week, and I really got to know him a lot more. Um, not that, that he was at all grounded in sobriety because he thought the 12 steps were a big, fat joke. Not that he really had a sponsor, mm-hmm. but he did share with me his sponsor was Rick Schoonover, the owner. In fact, the same owner that had tatted his arms up and down 
with death images, I found out later when reading his very thick autopsy report. So as it turns out, I'm called, not by the owner, but by my daughter, who is somebody contacted her to tell me that Jared died this morning. And I was, I was outraged. I was just, I was in disbelief. So I set on my journey just to get my questions answered as a mother would want. It was just real simple. What happened to my kid? And, and that, that's where my journey began because when I made that phone call, it was never returned. I never got a card. Mm-hmm. I never got a flower. Mm-hmm. In fact, the owner, Rick Schoonover, didn't even show up to Jared's funeral. And it really concerned me. So I went on this journey, and I discovered the whole world of sober living. And it disturbed me. And it disturbed me so much that I realized that, you know what? With all that I know, and with all that has been tried before me, that it's clear that this is a very complex issue. And the reason that there are no real fail-safes that are put in place, and that nobody's really ready to step up to the plate is because of their concern for liability. But most importantly, it's really the fact that you cannot administer something so, so huge. So with Jared's Law, what I decided to do once I realized that the owner of this sober living home had been warned, he'd been put on notice six times, don't house men in sheds in your backyard, which he was cited six times. He has three homes. And each home was a three-bedroom, two-bath house, looked normal from the outside. But in each one of those houses, he stuck 24 guys in in each Mm -hmm. home, making about $42,000 a month Mm tax-free. That bothered me. So I went on my journey, and I found that, you know, the city of Los Angeles at that time was at least, no one was interested. Nobody wanted to listen to me. And so I figured, you know what, what would really make some sense is that we put some fail-safes in place, something that's simple, something that actually can be administered, something that's manageable. And that's when I came up with Jared's Law, because in the process of taking this uh, sober living home owner to task for what he, in fact, did, um, there were some narcotic-sniffing dogs involved in evidencing and showing to the industry that that's how simple it is for you to, in fact, do your due diligence to maintain a drug-free environment. You have, you know, a a random narcotic-sniffing dog come in once a month. Jared's Law would be able to then get inside sober living homes and also have them subscribe to another two simple rules. One is that your managers need to be first-day trained and that they know how to administer Narcan. It's really important, mm-hmm. and that's not happening. So that's really mm-hmm. sort of how it began. And throughout the last 10 years, because I've been involved with this for 10 years, a lot has changed. And um, one of the things that I was very, was very um, happy about was that I was invited as a stakeholder from the California Department of Drug and Alcohol a few few years ago to be a a stakeholder to be involved in their transition process from their department disbanding as a result of no money and it being put into the hands of the Department of Healthcare Services. So what's happening now is I'm now fully involved in the process of how California is going to have to address um, some really, really, really big issues. And 
it really is going to, I think, open up a whole new world. Um, and it really comes down to Obamacare and the Affordable Care Act uh, and the American with Disabilities Act. So in, in, in my research, I have found that there's some really serious and um, um, interesting things that I think the public should know about the fact that now that everybody is, in fact, required to have insurance, whether it's through the exchange or whether it's through your own self, you have to have it. And it was very clear in the Mental Health Parity Act that the insurance companies now have to pay for mm-hmm. mental disabilities. So, therefore, they had to come up with basically a framework. And that framework was very, very, very clear. And it stated that they will pay for evidence-based treatment. Now, Mm -hmm. I think that if I were to ask anybody, you know, do you know what evidence-based treatment really is or what it really means, I don't think people would really know what that is. However, it's it's an important reality because here's what's going to happen. Insurance companies now are being forced. They have to pay for treatment 30 Mm -hmm. to 90 days. And what is happening now is the insurance companies are poising themselves to bring a full lawsuit against the federal government because of the fact that they know that 30, 60 days is nearly appropriate, even 90 days, when you don't have evidence-based treatment to follow up with after that 90 days because the, the numbers, the numbers say, say everything. Okay, the numbers say everything. So let me just segue a little bit to the numbers as I'm speaking about numbers, because this is a very important number. I want everybody to hear this and hear it so loudly. Every single day, 100 people are dying from opiate and heroin overdose, prescription drug overdose, opiate-based overdose. That's 100 people a day. And while I was watching the news, while they were looking for this plane in Malaysia, every three days, an airplane, a Boeing 747 filled to the gill with people, are crashing down on American soil. And nobody's taking notice. So now that I'm involved with the state of California and evidencing them to them that, number one, the insurance companies are pulling out. They're not going to start. So that means treatment has to change. Sober living has to change. It now is all under this umbrella of you have to be evidence-based. What is not evidence-based? 12-step programs. Not evidence-based. Mm-hmm. To, and, and, and it was something that was really brought to light when I was involved with the documentary um, where they went to every treatment facility and asked, you know, and, and questioned their success rates and asked where they got them from. And as it turned out, they gave them the doctor's information and they flew up to Bethesda, Maryland. And they went right up to these doctors and said, does a 12-step program someone with a heroin or a methamphetamine addiction? And they flat out said no. And this is the problem that I see today, that um, people are thrown this bag of steps. And I even threw them to my mm-hmm. own children, okay? Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to sit around and bash AANA. It, it definitely helps a lot of people, I'm sure. It just doesn't help the entitled young child of today, okay, in my opinion. So 
what I have decided to do is take this a real, you know, I want to take it to the next level. And the only reason and the only way things get taken to the next level, unfortunately, is if you get sued. GM wouldn't have fixed a car had they not been sued. And so what the uh, state of California and every state is going to have to take into consideration, as well as the federal government, is that they are dealing with a significant amount of liability. And I think that that's just something that is is, is pretty um, interesting because in one way, it's one of the best things that could have ever have, have had to happen because now we have a little bit of leverage. What concerns me is the ignorance that, that not just the country has, but let me give you an example. Just the other day on, on, on April 29th, there was a hearing. It was a subcommittee hearing in Washington. It was called the hero, heroin hearing that wasn't. And basically, mm-hmm. a bunch of you know people came and sat and talked, and basically there was nothing that was there was nothing that was done, nothing. But there was something that really bothered me in this particular article, and it, sta- it started to tell you know numbers, and that there's seventeen thousand deaths. Well, guess what? That that figures from 1999. That is not the case. There's 365,000 deaths a year, so you know there is such a huge giant disconnect. Um, regarding, uh, I guess, the meat and potatoes of this situation. But on a more personal level, I really believe that Jared's death is a reminder of two things. First, that, you know, addiction can exist in people's lives alongside wonderful connections with other people, wonderful accomplishments, and and wonderful abilities. And Mm -hmm. second... This problem touches so many people in so many different ways. And, uh, you know, the stereotypes that we have about opiate addictions and what, it, what a heroin user looks like is, has just changed. Um, and they don't match the human experience of many people with opiate use disorders or mm-hmm. their experiences. So I sort of learned firsthand over the years um, and what led us to my son's death, the critical component that sober living has. Because these are facilities that are meant to provide people with the opportunity to recover in a safe environment, to transition from their dependency and triggers, to rebuild their self-esteem. And at the end of the day, we as a society are not doing enough because we don't even know the correct information. So part of what I'm doing is trying to implement Jared's Law, um, mainly because, you know, and in addition, I've noticed uh, over the course of, time, and uh, especially in the last year, I can't believe it how many people I, I receive emails and calls from mothers who have lost their sons every single day, and, and, and some of them, they have to um, move out of their home that they've lived in their whole lives because they've mortgaged their home to the hilt to try to get their mm-hmm. kids treatment. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, those kinds of things... Uh, propelled me into getting involved. So at this juncture, we've been asked to participate with the uh, with California Department of Healthcare Services. And uh, you know, the reality is is that because of the Affordable Care Act, uh, California has a lot of obstacles and opportunities, uh, but they have to be reconciled within compliance of the reform to avoid liabilities and to successfully act as the 
public's trust of healthcare delivery service. You know, it's something people have to trust mm-hmm. in a situation. But the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act of 2008, which requires that all mental health and addiction be treated in, you know, at the same level as a as a physical issue, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. are at high risk for a financial loss. And um, I think that that's really when everything is going to come to a screeching halt, when people start... Uh, not getting paid, and why are they not going to get paid? They're going to get this notice. They're going to say, I'm sorry, we're not paying for your treatment because it's not evidence-based medicine. And people are going to go, what? How is the insurance companies getting away without paying for treatment now? I thought that you were supposed to cover treatment. Well, let me just Mm -hmm. explain a little bit about evidence-based medicine. (laughs) It's medicine that's thoroughly investigated through techniques, Mm -hmm. and and it's, you know, it's, it's established. Um... So it's something that we need to be mindful of. Um, mm-hmm. And currently, right now, rehabilitation clinics are utilizing a 12-step facilitation model, and that's not evidence-based. So there's going to be a real um, impasse when it comes to the kind of things that are going to get covered. And I think that's what happens. People, when they don't, they don't get something covered that they thought was going to be covered, then they'll get upset. But on a basic level, everybody in the United States of America and especially people who suffer from addiction. It was very clear when they made the, uh, the, you know, these changes in amendments and uh, Americans with Disabilities. And it says real clearly that, you know, you, if you in fact are in, uh, and they say it's very specific, six months of recovery or you're involved in a treatment facility, you're in sober living, you're working at getting better, you're considered disabled. And throughout the years and throughout the states, every legal action that has been brought against any sober living home dwindles itself down to some sort of bullshit fair housing laws that are outdated from the 80s. This is no longer about fair housing laws. This is more about the rights of the disabled. And the rights of the disabled under the federal health and welfare statutes state that if somebody's in a facility such as this and you're paying money, um, you have a right to be free from harm. Allah, you have to have a drug-free environment. You have a right to prompt medical attention, which, in fact, Jared wasn't afforded that. So those basic things, you know, that, you know, are already part of law that are just not being enforced, they, you know, we need to look at some real bottom lines. And we have to, because I've watched over the 10 years all these bills be written, and then they die. And they get written again, and they die. And they get written again, and they die. And every city and municipality is trying to come up with their own little solution, which is just doing nothing but, you know, costing taxpayers money. And the truth is, to be honest with you, most of the, the, the congressmen in office, they die before the bills die. So it becomes a real, a real crazy situation. And I've got to be honest with you, uh, legislation is not in my opinion, the way to go at this juncture, because you're going all the way up. And I'll tell you why. I'll give you an example. California, uh, there was an uh, assemblyman, Vistande. He was going to, you know, 
you know, mothers came to him, they expressed, we expressed our, our, our need, our concern, and our outrage, and he's like, all righty, we are going to put this bill together, and so we were all excited about AB 2491. Woohoo! And so, you, you know, you get this little bill, and it's about sober living, and then you get to the next amendment, and it says, um, sober living homes may participate, or they're exempt. They'll even go to the exact extreme to say, well, yeah, this is a definition, and we're exempting them from any kind of licensing or, or, or requirements or oversight. So uh, I guess what I'm trying to do is give you a full illustration of the conundrum um, that we have, and that's why I believe that we really need to take advantage of this mental health parity law, and I believe it is the reason why uh, the other day that they walked away from this hearing with nothing because they they still Mm -hmm. really are trying to figure out really and truly how they can be protected from liability. That's one of the main reasons that they didn't have an answer for it. In addition to their misinformation, they just don't have a lot of answers. So I guess what I'm trying to do right now is educate people to, you know, what the problems are and, and to address this, you know, issue and to also let people know that there are new things that are happening in California as a result of me pounding my fist on the desk. And finally, the district attorney of Los Angeles is going after, going after a home. Now, mind you, it's after several deaths, but they're going to go after this home. And what I find really interesting is that, you know, the, the way they're going after them is for unfair business practices. And that should give you an illustration of the fact that, you know, people are reaching for straws. How can we, how can we uh, take these people down? How can we, how mm-hmm. can we do something? And, and the best mm-hmm. that they've come up with is, you know, a business and professions code 17200, you know, you know, this place, you know, which is a treatment facility is shuffling people to their sober living. Oh, let's get them there. I mean, that's ridiculous to me. But nevertheless, that's where we, you know, 10 years later, they're just beginning. However, one of the reasons that I decided to sue this owner was I realized something, and that was this. There is absolutely no hook to hang a hat on to sue these people. So I really, really, Mm -hmm. truly wanted to pursue this 100% in a court of law, and I wanted it to be, be appealed, and because that's the only reason, that's the only way you can cite a case is to have it appealed. Unfortunately, I was not able to uh, conclude uh, in, in a courtroom. However, I was able to prevail. And one of the biggest benefits of being able to prevail is not being gagged, which gives me the ability to be able to talk to you today. And uh, you know, and and in truth, I was uh, I was a bit concerned the other day. Um, well, I wasn't concerned. I was actually quite thrilled. I got a con- I got a call from a show called Vice on HBO, and mm-hmm. they wanted to hear my story. So they came on out, and I told them my story. And uh, I told them, you know what? I said, I said, you know, it was a guy who ran Safe House One, Two, and Three, which I'd shut down eventually. He just opened up a new place here about a half an hour from me, and I want to mm-hmm. roll up on him. So they came. They loaded up their camera. And I decided, nah, we're not going to roll up on the house. We're going to roll up on his tattoo shop where he, he lived, where he's working. 
And this is a guy, I give you, you know, he's a motorcycle tattoo looking guy. Um, and I was very grateful that when I was deposing him, I got it on videotape. It was quite something. One of the questions, actually, he was asked was, how many children do you have? To which he responded, ooh, 10, uh, 11. You know why he couldn't know? Because he has impregnated so many women in his sober living homes. He has 10, 11 children from them. So nevertheless, I got all jazzed, and uh, we got in the car, and we rolled up on this guy. He was actually sitting outside his tattoo shop. And... uh, I didn't know if he would recognize me, but he, he didn't. So I sat down right next to him. Cameras were, in fact, right behind me. And I said to him, I'm like, you know, don't worry, this isn't cheaters. And he smiled. And I sat down. And I said, you know, I'm looking to get a tattoo. And I handed him Jared's memorial. It's a beautiful picture. And he looked at me, and his face scrunched up. And he, re- he really realized who I was, and he, I asked him, I'm like, why didn't you come to Jared's funeral? And he looked at me, he stood up and said, I don't go to drug addicts' funerals. <laughs> I went, what? I go, you've got to be kidding me. I go, Jared was, you were his sponsor. I wasn't his sponsor, which he, you know, admits to on the deposition that he is. I go, it wasn't my fault. I go, look at you, you. You have a stack of building and safety violations. You were put on notice. I don't have any of that. I'm like, really? So I'm listening to this. And uh, then he gets up and he turns to me, Kenneth, and he looks at me and he's like, you ruined my life. And I remember turning to him. I'm like, uh, you, don't, you don't recall You don't know what the person who ruined your life looks like. So it was interesting because you know what the truth of the matter was? I didn't go there to really um, rouse him. I went there with this this, this fantasy in my head that I would, you know, and I wrote it all out. And I was like, look, I wanted to know if you wanted to be uh, part of the solution with me and change your legacy, change Jared's legacy. He's very connected in the Sober Living Network. I thought he could help me get this platform, you know, initiated with the Sober Living Network. And he was absolutely not at all interested. And so he ran away from me. He ran away, ran into his shop. And I stood there, and I threw in Jared's memorial, and I threw in, you know, the good intention paperwork. And uh, some, some, some kid came, you know, some man came up with his tattoos and his piercings in his ears, and you know what, Kenneth? He made the worst mistake of putting his hands on a tiger's mother. And there it was, ten years of angst. All came out of me as I hurled this kid, whoever he was, didn't even know he was, through the air, 12 feet into a parking lot. You know, so you don't, you know, t- you don't put your hands on me. But before he said that, he said, he was a drug addict. So it was quite interesting. It was all on film. And I was actually, you know, for the first time, I was like, you know what? I got to finally say how I feel to the person who needs to hear it. And it wasn't at the time, but at that time, it was at the time. So mm, that was something that really and truly gave me sincere, sincere clarity. And that was, okay, here's a guy who is still preying off the backs of vulnerable people, and God, you know, if they die, gee, they won't, he won't go to your funeral, just so you know, if you're a drug addict. Mm-hmm. So um, that, that's sort of like, you know, the, the, 
the bit of the personal story of everything. Um, and what I've been doing with the help of, you know, a lot of people who have been helping me is really put questions to the Department of Healthcare Services. You know, real important questions to them, such as, you know, how does the Mental Parity and Addiction Equity Act of 2008 affect sober living homes and the referral of patients to sober living homes? And the answer to that is that, unfortunately, due to the Mental Parity and Addiction Equity Act of 2008, at no time can a patient be referred to a sober living home that is not licensed and treating with evidence-based medicine. So there's a requirement by the law, specifically one of the reasons why a patient may be paying higher premiums to ensure that they may receive their full evidence-based medical care for the entire time of treatment. But if you are being referred to an unlicensed facility that isn't established, um, that isn't medically guided, it's not evidence-based, it's not going to get paid for. And it really is, but it mostly speaks to the fact that uh, it's going to place both California and a referring clinic in severe financial liability because, you know, now there's going to be violations of the federal law. And I really think that that's really the key is that because, you know, we don't know, I I don't know if any of the congressmen have read the Affordable Care Act, but if you want your eyes to bleed, oh, go ahead and read it. (laughs) <laughs> it is an extreme, it, it, it's, it's challenging, but it does, there are some real severe um, um, positive things out of it that we can actually extract to, mm-hmm. to help people who are in, and you know, the, the, the reality is, is that, you know, people who have a lot of money who can afford sober living, well, the, the, uh, the Beverly Hills sober living you see on television, you know, for the most part, people are, you know, they're, you know, they're dealing with the regular type of low-key home where you've got, you know, anywhere from 6 to 24 people. And, you know, as it stands right now, it's, unfor- it's just, it's offensive to my sensibilities that they believe that a person who has a couple of months sobriety underneath their belt is it's sufficient to be a manager of a sober living home and that there is no requirement for, for first aid training. And uh, we as a nation need to wake up every three days a plane is going down, which means that, guess what, every single person in your first aid kit, you should have some Narcan. And uh, mm-hmm. police officers here in San Diego and in Los Angeles, they're now carrying it. And it's working. Mm-hmm. So well, I really, I'm a big you know. supporter of, you know, <clears throat> For example, in Canada, they have a completely different uh, vehicle set up to treat people with opiate addiction, to, to approach it from a vein of helping people as opposed to penalizing people. That's the problem in the United States of America. We created a war on drugs, and that war has turned into, uh, I don't know, what do you call it? It's almost like disaster. Exactly, you got it. So um, I'm going to take a stand. 
And I'm, and I, and I have now. Uh, guess what? Everybody now has taken my calls, and everybody's calling me. And it was it's refreshing because you know nobody wanted to talk to me before. You know, when I was throwing down interventions with my kids and saying, "Here's the deal: it's this or that," I was looked at like I had three heads. So mm-hmm. you know what? I, if I, you know, right now, I have a unique opportunity to advance and not just make California, but create the model in California that every single state is going to have to follow suit. It's not going to be mandatory, or or it's not going to be, "Ah, you know, that sounds good, we'll adopt that. No, it's because of, of Obamacare. It is because of the Mental Health Parity Act that you must, you know, act and respond in a certain way. Unfortunately, if I don't say anything... It'll take another five years for people to figure it out. And by that time, administration changes and, you know, roddy roo roddy roo. My idea right now is this, is that, you know, President Obama came out a couple months ago and he was like, you know what, I can't get anything done in the Senate, this Congress, they're ridiculous, screw them. So he had a meeting of, of, of every state governor. And he said to them, he's like, as long, you know, as long as I'm in office, I want you to come to me, and I will help you with this, with any problem that I can help you with. So I sort of see that as an opening. I'd like to go ahead and, and gather every governor together, and have them and have them make this a priority. But you know, it, it disturbs me that you know, just a few days ago, you know, these numbers of seventeen thousand people a year is so ridiculously off I don't know where they get their numbers but the truth needs to come out and I think you know part of what I'm doing right now is aligning myself with a lot of other mothers that have you know come aboard and are going Mm -hmm. to help me in my mission um, to create safe sober living Um, unfortunately if we ask for too many things Nothing's going to get done because what you know we go back to it's too hard to administer. So I mean, I think what I'm asking is unreasonable. And uh, like I said, I, I this journey for me was all about getting better and not bitter. Um, it's taken a long time. I think you know the other so day I, helped me I've a lot. I got a question for you. I got a question. I want to. Uh get into this uh, issue a little bit. Um, now, the sober living residence that your son was in, what was their attitude about medication? You know, it's interesting. Um, their attitude, well, I don't know what their attitude was, but I can tell you one thing. I went to one of their meetings once, and one of the, one of the speakers, one of the sponsors of the meeting was a drug company, and they were touting how they could deliver the drugs to their house and how, you know, it's in a, in a foil pouch and blobby blue. But I have since learned that it is illegal to administer medication for, in sober living. It's a, you know, they, mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. it, it's a very fine line, but... I think that in terms of, of, you know, that that's a big issue. In fact, you know, it's one of the issues that I think that I have some standing with. And, you know, attorneys need to be listening up because this is an issue. If You know what? You can get shut down if you're administering medication to patients and it's not medically supervised by their doctor. Mm-hmm. 
But my question is is because of this, because many, many sober living residences require the residents to get off all medications. They must get off any antidepressants, antipsychotics. They have to get off uh, maintenance medications like buprenorphine or methadone, and that just kills people right and left. Absolutely. And you know what's really disgusting is that, you know, I'll never forget, there was a judge who was brilliant, and he was sharing and imparting some very amazing wisdom. Why? Because his daughter was addicted to methamphetamine. And I'll never forget him looking at my daughter and saying, you know what, you have a 90% chance of not making it, and I'll tell you why. Your brain chemistry has changed. When you start using methamphetamine, when you start using other types of drugs, you're bought, you, you know, you're, you're, the gland in your brain starts excreting this, you know, happy juice, dopamine. Well, when you stimulate that and then you take it away, your body chemistry, your brain chemistry changes to the extent that you need to have um, pharmacological support. You need more than just pharmacological support when you leave a sober living or you leave a treatment facility. You need more. You need vocational support. And the fact that they, and, and the fact that a 12 step group, first and foremost, makes you subscribe to this incredibly ridiculous idea that you're a powerless individual. And then, heaven forbid, while you're getting open heart surgery, you ask the surgeon for some anesthesia. You've blown your sobriety date. It's a bunch of shit. And so I, I mm-hmm. you know, I know that, and here's the interesting thing, you know, like Cliffside, Malibu, and this place and that place in, in Malibu, and promises. You know what they all do? They charge close to forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars per month, and guess what you get? You get to have, you know, a cook make you, you know, food with microgreens in it. Uh, you get some acupuncture. Oh, guess what? You can pet a horse, but guess what? You don't get. And guess what? You have to bring with you your own medical doctor. <laughs> so for all that money, there isn't even an on-site medical professional that's willing to put his reputation or license on the line. You got to come with your own. Now, I'm sorry, the normal individual doesn't have that capability, but that's the kind of, they know better. They know that they'll lose their million-dollar Malibu mansion if they start administering medication, and they're not, uh, you know. But I think that, you know, there it is. There's a, this is a big problem, and I absolutely have, you know, uh, I take issue. And unfortunately, the issue when you hear somebody say something like that, ah, you can't have medication because, you know, then you're still a drug addict. Tell me, Kenneth, what do you say to them? Um, I say that they're full of shit as soon as they say that because, um, I don't know, I'm a harm reductionist. I, you know, I don't care if somebody is using heroin recreationally and functioning. I don't even care if people are addicted to an opiate and functioning. Um, we know that the founder of John Hopkins hospital um you know he left his diary behind when he died he was a lifelong morphine addict he was the greatest surgeon in the country um you know and so if somebody you know wants to get off heroin or other opiates go on buprenorphine substitution therapy instead which makes them totally functional doesn't get them high uh well yeah it's like one of the best evidence-based treatments we have for opiate addictions, buprenorphine and uh, methadone. They work great. They get people functional. They get them out there. They can go to school, have a job, 
like be absolutely like any normal person. So these are evidence-based medications. These are evidence-based treatment interventions. And, you know, if somebody says, oh, I'm going to kick you out of a sober housing because you're taking this prescribed buprenorphine, I mean, those are the places that need to be shut down. Oh, they do. And you know what the other thing I really object to? And there's so many deaths as a result of this. Um, when Jared relapsed when he was at the home, and when many people relapsed, there's a rule that you're kicked out for three days. <clears throat> now, <laughs> explain to me how supportive housing, how the supportive environment works when if somebody is relapsed, the first thing you're going to do is kick them out on the street. You know, before you call the emergency contact, now I get the fact that you may trigger other people, but what the practice is now is you're just kicked out. You know, you're a failure and you're, you know, you, you become the loser. And I guess that's really the, you know, the idea that, that you know, Mr. Rick Schoonover, who preys upon the backs of vulnerable people, you know, it, it really, really is, 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 it's really telling at the fact that, and you know what it's because of? Because we have judges on the bench that need to go bye-bye. The reality of it is, is that there are too many judges that sit on a bench that look at heroin addiction as scourge on society. And that's not acceptable to me. It's just not. Um, there are other ways of approaching addiction. Abstinence, for some people, is the way to go. For other mm-hmm. people, they're mm-hmm. going to need a lot more support. Again, the re- mm-hmm. you know, as a result of using drugs for many, many years, not just people you know, change their brain chemistry, but you've got to really you know, go back a few steps and say, you know, what really started this? A lot of people self-medicate. You know? mm-hmm. They're just trying to feel normal. You know, we live in a very anxious society. But you know what really bugs me, Kenneth? I'll tell you, I heard something this morning. It really pissed me off. And it concerned me because I remember when my kid was of that age and, and you know, the, the war at the time was just sort of, you know, 9-11 just happened. And I saw all of my, my, uh, my son's friends. They're all, you know, joining up and they're going out to war. Part of me, you know, wanted, I was like, oh, that would, no, I really never wanted him to go to do anything of that nature. But nevertheless, a lot of his friends did. And I, told, and I remember back then saying, you know what, oh, my God, we're going to have these kids coming back, and they are going to be so fucked up and have such mental health issues, and we need to know that now. There needs to be a program of, of reentering society. Well, you know what? You know what the VA has done to treat people with mental illness and depression? They have them no. on a hundreds of drugs every day, and they're dying from overdoses because that's how the government really feels that that's how they're, you know, that to me really bothered me. So you've got the, you know, the government thinking, uh, you know, I'll just give you drugs, 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 drugs. And uh, so more, pe- more people are dying from overdoses, from drugs that they get from the VA, than they are dying in combat. How ridiculous mm-hmm. is that? Just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I don't. I, I really think that the United States is is behind in 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 many things when it comes to the way that you know. It's it's like Tony Robbins used to say: if you want to do something successful, go find somebody who's really been successful at it, and you know, have them mentor you. 
and I don't, I really, you know, I don't get why the United States doesn't really engage with the government of Canada to find out how harm reduction is working in that sti- in that country, mm-hmm. and how mm-hmm. how certain changes um, are working. But again, I think it comes right down to this. You know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Well, 10 years ago, there was a lot of, like, little squeaks. Well, today, 100 people are dying every day. And, uh, and, and so it, this isn't a big squeak. This is a, it's chalk, it should be ch- fingers on the chalkboard. And, uh, and we mustn't forget. We mustn't forget where we all came from. And I'm sure very many people are aware of the fact that in the 1930s, when heroin came out on the, on the streets of the United States, it was the best thing since sliced bread. In fact, Sears and Roebuck used to sell rigs. And, you know, it was given to mm-hmm. children for coughs and, you know, women for menstrual cramps and for everything. And then obviously there's some, you know, societal problems that took place. And as a result, Leavenworth was built and 99% of everybody who was in Leavenworth was a heroin addict. We created this problem, and then we called it scourge. And I object to that. This is bullshit. Well, you know, if you go back and actually look at the history, it was uh, much less uh, any social problem that was created by uh, cocaine or opiates or any drug. As um, It was a race issue. I mean, we had uh, people writing these stories about these crazed Negroes on cocaine raping white women, and uh, we had uh, huge prejudice against the Chinese and their opium. It was not really related to the problems caused by the drug itself because, you know, the average person that was addicted to opiates in 1903 was uh, the grandmother at church that baked the cookies and gave them to you, you know, because right. opiate addiction doesn't turn you into a raving maniac axe murderer. It just makes you dependent on opium. Right. And you know what? It's like... And who, you know, who wouldn't want to, like, you know, have that sensation of feeling good when your life is shit? You know, it's just the truth. We live in a very hard, difficult society. And, you know, who the biggest drug dealers are is the, you know, the pharmaceutical companies. How dare mm-hmm. they come out and release Zyhydro? How dare the FDA allow that to, to approve that drug? How dare they, especially against the medical board's recommendation not to. We do not need, we don't need drugs that are ten times stronger than oxy and in heroin. We don't need that. Do you know how many more deaths are going to happen as a result of that drug hitting the market? Mm-hmm. I don't get that. I don't get that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, once again, unfortunately, you know, we're back down to the bottom line of the United States of America. It's all about money. And you don't get people won't do a damn thing unless they're sued. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know it was really interesting throughout this process of trying to hold Rick Schoonover accountable for his actions. I had to be my own lawyer. You know why? Because I called at least fifty attorneys, and this was back in two thousand and four. And I told them the whole story. You know what they said to me, Kenneth? They said, "You know what? I'm sorry, I can't take your case." Because a jury won't be able to overcome the objection of Jared sticking the needle in his own arm. <laughs> now, mind you, the drugs came into the sober living home, and you know, drugs were done on premises. 
which doesn't matter. It doesn't, you know, it's neither here nor there. And, it, it, you know, that's what we call contributory negligence. But bottom line is that if you're paying for a second set of eyes, you have a responsibility mm-hmm. to maintain a drug-free environment. Because you know why? Because you hold yourself out much more than a landlord. What I've seen the United States try to do is try to tie up the owner into terms of liability by saying, well, you've got to have a separate agreement, a lease agreement. Like somehow, you know, everyone's just trying to shift the blame. I think just, you know, like with harm reduction, you know, let's look at what works. Let's mm-hmm. take a look at some things that actually are proven to help people as opposed to ignoring the situation and, 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 and looking at it as a, you know, you know and, and it's no longer not my kid. It's just no longer not my kid. You know, mm-hmm. I felt so guilty. I felt so filled with shame. I felt I did it wrong. I beat myself up for years. I sent him to that place. I highlighted it. I talked to the son of a bitch. I was no stranger to danger. I knew what sober living was about. And that motherfucker, what did he end up doing to help my kid? He tatted, he tatted his arms up and down with death images, Kenneth. Death images. Mm-hmm. One of them was so graphic, it was like a razor blade slitting his wrists with blood dripping. Who does that? Now, you know what? That's just no longer offensive to my sensibilities. I wish I was able to pick that man up and throw him across. But apparently, Barry ruined mm-hmm. his life, you know? So, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, he hasn't even, he doesn't even, he hasn't even begun to feel it again. Because if he thinks that he's going to open up another sober living home and profit off the backs of vulnerable people 30 minutes away from me, Hmm, he's got something common. And I will be gunning for every single sober living home. In fact, right now, creating an advisory board of attorneys. Because guess what? Mm-hmm. All of those places that they say this, you know, we don't want you to use those drugs. But guess what? They administer them. That's illegal. So, so mm-hmm. you know, you, you asked that question earlier, like, you know, you know, them feeling as if that they shouldn't be. Uh, at all uh, participating in the administration of medications, you know, are, the, are those the quote-unquote good places or the bad places? You know, they're bad, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, the ones that supposedly would be good by giving their medications, they're, it's illegal. It's a conundrum. But the mm-hmm. thing that I love about law is this. It's real simple. It's called duty and breach of duty. And now it's risen to a level of a federal situation, which I love, because guess what? Uh, the federal government has a duty. They have a duty to enforce their own Mental Health Parity Act law. They're not real sure how to do it, but I'll be more than happy to explain to them how simple it is. Okay, And I just think that, you know, from what I've learned... And from what I know about politics, that uh, the way that this is going to have to get fixed is the way I'm approaching it, and that's this. You get on a state committee. You become entrenched in their committees, which I am. You are involved in every single meeting, and you give recommendations, which I'm doing. And I also know that this is, you know... um, you know, it's all great and everything, but, you know, keep in mind, they're just taking on uh, 
a department in addition to all their other things that they're doing. So, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a recipe for failure unless there's somebody like me will bang a drum. I'll give you a great visual. I was really trying to find out what this was all about, sober living. What the fuck is this all about? And they were doing this summit meeting in Loyola Marymount. And so I came because I noticed there was one guy in the network, the Sober Living Network, and that's another issue, but who would keep me in the loop. Sober Living Network is a network of people in sober living, but basically it's the insane running the asylum. Okay, They don't have to be a part of the Sober Living Network. But if you do, and if you are a member of the Sober Living Network, you have to adhere to a member agreement. You have to adhere to ethics and, you know, their, their member agreement. And you have to abide by their rules. Now, guess what? Rick Schoonover, not only was he a big part of Sober Living Network, he was on the board. Guess what? He wrote the training manual. Guess what? He was like the author of everything. So it's like, there it is, the insane running the asylum. But I do remember one day going to this, this, this big conference because there was a judge who was going to talk about Prop 36, which at the time was very relevant. And I remember sitting in the class, and after he was done, he was you know, asking questions. And this one woman stands up, and she's from the Sober Living Network, and she says, Oh, the Sober Living Network is just rotty, rotty, good, 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 good. And I just stood up. I'm like, you know what? My son died at the safe house, and that's a bunch of bullshit. Well, I'm going to tell you something, Kenneth. From that day on, and from that moment on, all I would hear is, that's Wendy. Oh, that's Wendy. Yeah, I'm the one who's, who's blowing up your email. I'm the one who's blowing it all up. And I think that that's really the thing. It's like with anything. Um, uh, people just want you to go away. They'll throw money at you to go away. And I just, you know what, I knew. I knew. Because of the kind of person that I am, um, that I would never be able to, to not just sleep at night. It was very important for me to be able to look up after this was all said and done and look up in the sky like today and say, Happy birthday, Jared. You know what? You died in valor, not in vain. And other people's lives will be saved because I'm going to make them take a look at a really big problem. And I have absolutely no problem with shooting my mouth off anywhere and everywhere, which is why I am so grateful that you contacted me and are giving me a platform. Because like I said before, nobody wanted to talk to me. I couldn't get anybody. You know, whereas now I'm called every day by moms. Every day. And you know what was really weird, Kenneth? For like a whole year, all of them had the same name, Jared, Justin, Joey. Everyone had a J name. I don't know. Maybe that mm-hmm. was at the time. But I, you know, now it's, now it's everybody. I see like Romper Room. I see Joey. I see Carter. I see, you know, do we not? I guess we don't get it. I guess I can't say it enough. I can't say it enough. And truth be told, that was a February statistic, 100 people dying every three days. I personally believe that now it's, I think, 200 a day. 
You know, and, and, and that's really, that concerns me. Concerns me that we had a, a hearing about uh, this huge problem about heroin. And they're, they're relying on, on statistics from 1999? That effect just yeah. makes me sick. Yeah. What is with that? I don't get it. Are we supposed to be really stupid? Well, you know, I guess, I guess they realize that people, you know, won't, won't Google their shit. Yeah, anybody that's familiar with uh, what's going on with overdose knows that the numbers have risen about uh, ten times, about tenfold in the past ten years. We know that. I mean, I've got the graphs right in front of my face every day from the New York City Department of Health. Um, i got to say that New York City and New York State is doing some good things. They're in their treatment programs. They're introducing people to Narcan. They're explaining overdose prevention um, they're telling them your tolerance drops while you're absent in treatment. If you use the same amount when you go back out, you're going to kill yourself with an overdose. You can't use the same amount. You got to use a smaller amount. If That's you're how Jared use died. Again. Yeah, use the same amount. Yeah. I have a question for you, Kenneth. In terms of um, mm-hmm. uh, you have been involved with hams. Could you just give mm-hmm. me an idea of what that is for other people who are like I'm going to bring into this this uh, interview? Tell well, me a little Hams bit about is, it. Hams is a free of charge lay led support group. It's for people who want to change their drinking habits, so it supports any positive change from safer drinking to reduced drinks to quitting altogether. Um, you know, I uh, started. You know, I started hearing the term harm reduction. I don't know, ten, twelve. Fifteen years ago, I got interested in it. I started volunteering in needle exchange because I knew there wasn't any harm reduction program for alcohol, really. There was a moderate drinking program, but they said, well, if you ever drink immoderately, you need to go to AA and abstain forever. And I thought that was not going to work for everybody. So um, I got involved with needle exchange. I volunteered. I learned. I took the tools that they were using for drug users, brought them to people that drink alcohol, um, so hams is about alcohol, but I'm very, because I've been tied with needle exchange, I've been working on and off with them for, you know, the last 10 years. I'm really closely tied to a lot of people uh, that work with harm reduction for drug users. So it's a, it's a very big concern of mine personally. It's separate from the hams organization, which is really concentrated on alcohol, though. You know what I find interesting? I have a question for you. You know, alcohol. Um, Alcoholics Anonymous was established in the 1930s by a man mm-hmm. by the name of Bill. He had a trouble. Mm-hmm. He had trouble with alcohol, and you know, mm-hmm. he was able to um, create a movement that helped a lot of people. Mm-hmm. My, 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 but my, my concern is this: from what I know about Bill W. specifically and his personal life, which really wasn't in calm. It didn't really coincide with his, you know, the beliefs that he was putting in his book. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's just look at it as Alcoholics Anonymous. Okay, then the cocaine came into our scene, and we were into Cocaine Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous. Now, when heroin came big time, bad time out, and methamphetamine became a big problem because those are huge, big drugs now today because it's, you know, cheaper than anything else. You know, what have we done in changing 
the 12-step approach. We somehow believe that those organizations or those meetings are the only place that you can negotiate your way through a life of normalcy. And I really have an issue with that because it really, number one, I'm sorry, you can't compare alcohol addiction to heroin addiction. I don't, I don't see the correlation. I know, you know, you know I, oh, and I say that just from a physiological standpoint. You know, mentally addiction is addiction. It's a disease. Anything is a disease. If you're not at ease, you have a disease, okay? And if you don't have the disease, you continually stay not at ease, you'll get the disease. That's how it works, sort of how I think. But bottom line is, is that, you know, AA um, started off with really great intentions. But you know what really is bothersome to me today is that mm-hmm. it's turned into um, predatory grounds, even 10 years ago, my daughter would come and tell me. I remember her at sober living homes where there were, there were managers that were creeping on girls. And, you know, she was my daughter. And I always stood up in front of her and for her because she was my child. And guess what? She is also my success story. Boy, did she come through. Boy, is she the most amazing woman on the face of this earth. And I don't just say that because she's my daughter, but because she's been there, done that, and has turned her life around in, in, in such a huge way. And you know what? I don't contribute that to myself. I contribute that to the work that she did. And most importantly, she got treatment. Why? Because I was able to force her. I was her parent. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. Jaren didn't get treatment. But you know what? I've been talking to people. Like, for example, I had a, I ever did a radio interview a while back, and my daughter and I walked in. She came with me, and uh, one, of the, you know, the, 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 one of the hosts was in sobriety. One of these Malibu kind of things, right? First thing he asks my daughter, so where'd you get sober? <laughs> she sort of looks at him, and she's like, uh, planet Earth. And goes, How many days do you have? Really, you know, it's this, you know, and I, you know, mind you, I'm in Malibu, and it was, you know, it wasn't very long before, you know, it was real clear to me. It's like, oh, okay, he even said it. You know, he wants to be like Robert Downey Jr. Everybody wants what that person has. And look at this, a very egomaniacal kind of place. But what I object to is the fact that we are court-ordering not just men, but young women into AA. And they are... Mm -hmm predatory grounds for men to take advantage. And, you know, it's really interesting. It's like, you know, they say, you know, you shouldn't get in a relationship with the first year, yada, yada, you. But, you know, when you take away drugs from somebody, what's the first thing they're going to want to do to feel good? You know, that's, that's why there's a lot of inappropriate sexual behavior at these meetings. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. a given. It's almost mm-hmm. as a given mm-hmm. that, like, for example, you put a bunch of drug addicts in the same room, and what's the first thing that they're going to do? They're going to exchange their connects. Let's not make any mm-hmm. mistake about it. In fact, out here, and I don't know about out there, dealers in the, you know, Narcotics Anonymous meeting rooms in the parking lot. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm going to go back and answer your question now. Um, mm-hmm. yes. uh, 12-step programs have never had a really good success rate when you compare them to a control group. 
Um, we know now that we have really good research out there from uh, the, the uh, National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, uh, the lifetime remission rate for alcohol dependence is 90%. 90% of everyone who has alcohol dependence will kick it before they die. Um, they will either quit or they will moderate. Um, and how many of those do that through AA? Less than 10%. Almost everybody that has alcoholism eventually kicks it, and they do it on their own, and the rate of success for AA is not better than the rate of spontaneous remission. Um, so, I mean, 12-step programs, because they're faith healing, because they're basically a religious cult, they're really good at getting testimonials. Everybody that quits through a 12-step program is up there, I quit through AA, AA saved my life, it saved my life. Everybody that quits on their own, I want that put in my past. I don't want to talk about it. Shut up. We're not going to talk about that. That's done over with. So you hear all these people talking. The difference really between the opiates and alcohol is not how they affect your brain so much, but it's so many people that graduate treatment programs, 12-step treatment programs, they relapse on alcohol, big deal. They don't die. They relapse on opiates, overdose because they're not taught in treatment that they're going to overdose. They're not taught about Narcan. They're not taught about their tolerance dropping. So it's really dramatic the number of people that die the minute they get out of treatment uh, mm -hmm. when they're on opiates. But no, They're not in safe, sober living, yeah. <laughs> but the 12 steps are just not very effective. If people like that approach, good for them. I mean, if you like going to church, if that helps you, you know, stay away from booze or drugs, that's good for you too. I mean, it doesn't mean the church is a cure for diseases either. If, if you like it, go for it. If uh, AA drives you to drink, which it did to me, um, get the hell out of there, which is what I did. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it almost like, you know, it speaks of, you know, the suspension of critical thinking. And that bothers me, you know. I mean, that, that just is my own... You know, it's my own personal thought process on a lot of things, but, you know, it, it, it very much speaks of that in, in a 12-step program because you're asking people to suspend critical thinking at a time when they really, really should be developing their own personal critical thinking and uh, mm -hmm. to be, you know, constantly told that you're powerless, to be constantly told that you're, you know, somehow unworthy of being in a fold of people, you know, that are at, you know, you have to meet everybody else's expectations. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's really, it sets people up for failure. And I think it's great. You know, I remember being involved in 12-step groups. I was been in every 12-step group, this and non, that and non. In fact, I remember, you know, when Jared died, I was still going to NAR, um, to NAR, Narcanon. Narcanon. No, Narcanon, yeah. not Narcanon. Narcanon Naranon. is Scientology, and if anybody is yeah. hearing me in a million square miles, do not, absolutely do not send your kid to a place called Narcanon. Narcanon is owned by Scientologists, and one of my dear friends had her child die there. And mm. you know what? Guess what? With You know, because it was Scientology, they put so much pressure. In fact... One of the people that was going to testify just so happened to die unexpectedly the day before their deposition. These people did not play. You can't mess with Scientology. So she was gagged. And so that was like for me. She said to me, Wendy, I know you're going to find some attorney 
who says he's going to help you, which I did. And you know what I did? I found this guy. His name was Andrew Ellis. And you know what he did? He threw me under the bus. With, by the way, the bus that I paid for with my own money mm-hmm. on the eve of trial he withdrew because I would not settle. I didn't want their money. I was not going to be gagged. So it was very, mm-hmm. very, you don't say that to an attorney. I don't want the money. I didn't want this money. I don't know money was going to bring back Jared. But guess what? You know what? You don't get what you want in a court of law. You don't get your I'm sorry. You don't get any of that, you know. But I think, you know, sort of going off track. But I do think that we all need to take a look at the truth. And the mm-hmm. truth, well, the truth will set us free. And I think that that's real important if you really look at it in its whole spirit. We need to... Um, we need to start sharing the truth, and that's why I, mm-hmm. I so appreciate, you know, the Orange Papers. The, I so appreciate all of the information that you've shared with me, things that I hadn't thought about, hadn't processed, but are so true. And I am so grateful to you that you are, uh, you're a voice of reason. You're a voice of normality. You're a voice of, you know what, I, I you know, it just makes sense because you know why? Because mm-hmm. with the way you present information, Kenneth, I can see what it looks like, mm-hmm. and 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 that's really sometimes what it really comes down to. You know, mm-hmm. for so long people just don't know what it looks like, and when they get to that place where they're in this situation, you are in the midst of a hurricane. You know, you're in, you know people are in such moments of crisis that they just, you know. They'll grasp for anything, you know. They'll they'll do mm-hmm. what you know we all try to do as 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 you know good parents. And sometimes you know we we really believe that we just should throw money at the problem because you know you know mm-hmm. why? Because mothers in crisis who call up these these eight hundred numbers and they really believe that they're on the other line with a trained professional. No, not oh, on the contrary. They're on the phone with an experienced insurance agent. To guide you to the right place. And, you know, what's really bothersome to me is that, you know, whether it's your drug treatment, um, uh, uh, you know, process or whether you're um, bulimic and you're placed, the minute your insurance is run out, you are done. You're done. You're out. Mm-hmm. Get out. We can't, you, you know. And that's, that happened to Jared. You know, and I'll tell you, it was very interesting. When I took him, I personally thought as his mother in 2000 and. Oof, geez, when was I found it? 2001. I thought that when Jamie told me, Mom, Jared's like, not just as he has a problem with Aaron, but that he's, he's coming off of it. And they were really, they were, they were freaked out. So I really believed, Kenneth, that I could go on over there and lock myself in a room with my kid while he withdrew from heroin. I mean, I don't know what I was thinking, you know, but it was just like, that was my kid. I wanted to do, well, I found out within, you know, minutes that this child needed to be in the emergency room. So I took him to the emergency room, and I was, you know, he was incoherent. He was on, he was barely conscious. And after half an hour, the doctor comes on out, and he's like, I'm releasing him. I'm like, what? What's wrong? You can't die from a heroin overdose. (laughs) So I looked at him, and I said, you know what? If you don't keep him, 
I'm going to drop to the floor like Curly of the Three Stooges, and you're going to have to 5150 me. So then I was introduced for the first time to a crisis team. <laughs> so the crisis team comes, and, you know, they, they, you know, and they join forces, and, you know, and, and we really tried. And to be quite honest with you, you know, we almost got it. There was a point where we had this intervention, and at the time, I called my ex-husband from Arizona. I'm like, please, please, please help. I need your help. I can't do this one all by myself. So he comes on in a few days later, and we have this intervention. And, you know, protocol was, you know, there's a bed for detox, and then you get to go to this place. But it's, like, real important. you got to go, and you got to get these meds at the hospital, and you got to do this. you got to do that. Well, unfortunately, Jared's father went ahead, and instead of doing what was told to him, and I'm sure Jared had, you know, some way of manipulating him to somehow give him $40 and drop him off at home. For some reason, he just convinced his father that he was okay and whatever. For, you know, which was the first missed opportunity. It was a missed opportunity. And unfortunately, Jared took that $40 and got in his car, drove to downtown L.A., got in a car accident on the way back, but still managed to make it home. And, you know, but, you know, heroin addicts are, they're pretty funny. They think that they're so slick. But, you know, when people... When family members are on to you and they have the courage to say shit like, drop your socks, I don't trust you. <laughs> and thank God, you know, people were around him at that time, um, and that was good. But the mm-hmm. truth of the matter is is that if you have, you know, uh, if you're addicted to heroin, if you're addicted to opiates, um, it, your mother, your father, your sister, you know, they can try as much as they can. Um, but truth be told, you know, you need to have, I don't know, I think you have to have more in place than what is existing today. And what's sort of interesting is that what's existing today is very clear. It's just needing to be implemented. We, it's almost like instead of it's from the top coming down, it's almost from the bottom coming up. And I just mm-hmm. do really believe that if I can illustrate to the state of California the liability that the state has, as well as every state has, as well as the federal government, as a result of them basically requiring everybody in the United States to have insurance, they're going to have mm-hmm. to go ahead and, and, and uh, be aware that they're opening themselves up. So, again, there's no, there's no um, uh, uh, one remedy wonder, okay? It, there, you, know, we, you know, when we say evidence-based treatment, let me ask you, the needle exchange program, is that evidence-based? Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, yeah. So we had, the United States should have no problem Absolutely no problem, Kenneth. In fact, you should be help spearheading this with me and going, okay, now that the bomb of, now that the Mental Health Parity Act requires that, then there should be no reason at all why you, Kenneth, shouldn't apply for federal grant money for public safety to inform the world that this is an evidence-based avenue for them. And I'll do everything I can to beat that drum for you because, you know, you know, we could sit and talk about it, and I know that you have a lot of listeners, but it's not really until we start kicking some ass. You know, it's really important that, you know, we all know how we can, I don't know, you can, I don't know how I can describe this, grab the balls. I mean, I mean, that's sort of how 
in my life, you know, unfortunately, I only get the answers. I'll squeeze your balls. I mean, nothing personal to men, but I don't know why that's my visualization. But sometimes I just have to put the pressure on people. And for me, balls means being in court. I got you know. Mm-hmm. Because you know why? They look at me and they're like, I'm sorry, there's nothing you can do except hit them in the wallet. I'm like, shut the fuck up. Hit them in the wallet? Oh, yeah, and by the way, there's this chart that we use, and because he was this age and because he had this job and this beget, he's only, his life was only worth $10,000. Go fuck yourself. Do not deduce my son's worth in an insulting sign this and we'll give you $10,000 and shut the fuck up. A lot of people do that. You know why? Because they're so filled with devastation and shame. I can't get up. In fact, you know, my ex-husband, I, I, you know, I will call him a sperm donor because that's sort of really what, it, what he really was. Unfortunately, he wasn't really there. Um, I don't know. Some men, I just really believe, they, they believe that there's this window in the sky that you can go to to, like, try to, like, get out of all your parental responsibilities. And he was one of those guys. I, I can, I, you know, I can bash him, but I'm not going to. But I'm just going to give an illustration of the shame and guilt that surrounds this. When people ask him, how did your son die? He lies. He says, he was was killed by a car accident. So there it begins. There is so much shame associated with drug addiction. And that needs to stop. That needs to stop the shame, the stigma this word scourge and that word well, needs to know, stop we, the, to me the only way to do this is to completely get rid of the stigma associated with drug use period because we know that there are people that use opiates recreationally they don't ever get hooked but you know our government says you either have to be imprisoned or you have to be in treatment for a disease or in prison for a crime. You're not allowed to smoke heroin on the weekends. Um, oh, it's okay to get drunk on the weekends, but you can't smoke heroin on the weekends. Otherwise, you're a criminal or you have a disease of addiction, even though you're, you know, the people that work in the field, we know that there's a lot of people that are controlled opiate users. You know, you've got to first get rid of these drug laws that criminalize uh, recreational drug use. That's got to go. Don't well, not only have to go, it yet is another liability. Because what's happening is that in California, they're being forced to cut down prison population. Forced. So they just took the only avenue that they could take. So now all of a sudden, sober living homes are now housing not just nonviolent drug offenders, but sex offenders. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There is an absolute... You're right. There's a huge problem on how we're handling people punitively. And uh, and that really is an unfortunate situation because that's been proven not to work over and over again. In fact, you know, nowadays, you know, it used to be, it was very, it's very surprising to me because I remember this kid in Malibu and he was like, um, you know, asking my daughter, you know, you know, blah, 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 blah. And he was going on about, I've been into 24 treatments and 17 sober livings. It's like, really? Really? It's like, that to me was a blow mind. But because, it's, you know, this is a $300 billion industry. Make no mistake yeah. about it. 
You know, people are making money off of this situation. But if they start profiting off the backs of my kid, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to call bullshit. And I'm going to stand in front of all of these moms and call bullshit. Well, the thing to do is to put the crooks out of business by creating evidence-based treatments that are effective. They work the first time, or at least the second time. You don't need 30, 40, 50 times. And, you know, there's, there are people that are doing that. I don't know if you know Tom Horvath, who uh, he's oh, the yeah. president of Smart he, yeah, he's Recovery. President of Smart he's Recovery. got he's a wonderful run, program. Yeah, practice Give me a little recovery. insight on this program again, because I do remember reading about it, and it's phenomenal. It's, the, it's exactly what... That should be the it's model. A mo- it's a model program. Uh, Practical Recovery in San Diego, it incorporates elements of harm reduction. It uses all the evidence-based model, cognitive behavioral therapy. I think it uh, incorporates mindfulness, too. I'm not sure if he's incorporated that yet or not. But every evidence-based therapy out there has been incorporated into his program, and it's very effective. It is the model of how to do treatment. We have something quite similar uh, in New York City with Andrew Tatarski Center for Optimal Living, also incorporating all these evidence-based treatments. Um, that's, uh, that's an outpatient-only approach. Uh, Horvath uh, actually offers uh, residential as well. So, But these are the models. And, you know, if you build something that works and you're competing with people selling garbage with uh, charlatans, you're going to put them out of business eventually, and that's the way to do it is put them out of business by building Right, and that's what I'm about to do. Because why? Because sober living, I'm sorry, is not evidence-based treatment. So here's the thing that I found out while I was sitting in these meetings with the California Department of Health Care Services. Because I was blown away. I'm like, not only did the guy who owned the sober living homes that Jared lived in, he, you know, because if you have a nonprofit, FYI, everybody in the world, if there's a nonprofit, you have the right to request their information, their tax return information. So I did that with Rick Schoonover at his safe house, one, two, three. And each and every time I found the same thing, lies, lies, lies. He's a treatment facility. But you know what I found even more interesting is that the California Department of Healthcare Services and the Department of Drug and Alcohol prior to them required them to be nonprofits in order for them to get state funds. As I told them, I said, so basically that's the reason that they have been lying to the IRS. And do you not realize the ramifications of if, because they're not nonprofits, make no mistake about it, this is a cash cow business, period, the end. I'm sure there are good ones, but there are more bad ones than there are good ones. And Mm -hmm. if we, as a society, took a look at that, as we should, and we're going to, and say, you know what? I'm sorry. If you're a tattoo artist, guess what? You have to have a license. If you're a massage therapist, you have to have a license. If you do my toenails, you have to have a license. And then guess what? In California, and I'm sure it's pretty much everywhere from the United States on, you can't have more than five animals in a house if you're not zoned for more. But guess what? You can have as many people in a house and call them a family. I object to that. Mm-hmm. So we care more about mm-hmm. animals? And he has another thing mm-hmm. I object to that I found out. It's like all this money was left on the table in California. That's ridiculous to me. Here we have this huge problem. How was there still money left on the table? Because there's a disconnect. 
And, you know, I'm, you know, the more involved I get into the trenches of everything, I'm like, what's this? We are how, – how much money are we spending for the problem of gambling? Are you kidding me? So, you know, I'm standing up going, not only just gambling, but bingo. You know what? Last time I heard, I didn't think anybody died of bingo. And last time I checked, nobody died of gambling. You know, they may have lost their home, their life, their everything. Okay, but you know, uh, you know Monica Richardson. I think you know her. She did the the film called mm-hmm. Thirteen Step. Phenomenal, mm-hmm. big, important information. Very big. Women are being taken advantage of, absolutely in sober in in twelve step programs. And uh, but you know she has done something that I, I, I so respect and admire. You know, she's putting it out there. It's the truth. This is the truth. And I think that, the, the, you know, the more that we all start telling the truth, and again, you know, when we are shamed, when we feel bad, it's sort of hard to come forward and, and speak our truth because for some reason, you know, we are, you know, as a parent, you know, when our kid gets into Harvard and they become the doctor and the lawyer, hey, we had everything to do with that. But if our kid mm. died of a drug addiction, we didn't have anything to do with that. You know, and, and mm. it's just, mm-hmm. you know, there is a disconnect. And, and, and a lot of it has to do with, you know, our own personal feelings and our own egos and things of that nature. And some people can't get past it, which is why, you know, some people have to lie about how their kids die. Some people can't handle it. But you know what? It's not... And this is something that Jared said to me. And I'll tell you, this is very, very telling. It's a very, very important part of this story. You know, on Thanksgiving, he had shared with me and his sister how he was really concerned that they were about to let this kid by the name of Ryan move in. And he was dirty. And this back shed area, they were going to let him move back there. And that's where people who only had time were allowed to be, apparently. And so I said to him, like, you know, you need to talk to the manager, Gloria. I did. She didn't care. I said, you need to talk to Rick, your sponsor, the owner of this place, and you need to let him know. Okay, it was the last time I saw him. And what did I find out afterwards is, sure enough, that kid, Ryan, who did bring, in fact, the drugs, who was dirty, got high with Jared and two other individuals. And interestingly enough, the night before, I think it all began, and one of his best friends that he's known for quite some time there, he told the manager, Something's wrong with Jared. And, and Jared's such a sweet, gentle giant. He was cussing at people. It was just out of character. Did they drug test him? No. When the new kid came in and they put him in that back room, did they come in at 8 a.m. like they said they were at number 12 to check on them at 8 a.m. to make sure that they're out? No. Who found my kid? Ryan, who woke up at 2 o'clock and found Jared dead beneath him. Now, when I found that out, and then I found out that the people who loved Jared were so angry at this kid that brought in the drugs, they, they kicked him out. They ripped up his shit, apparently, and threw it on the lawn. Now, I heard the real story. I heard the real truth from the people that were there, not from the owner. He didn't know anything. But when I realized what was going on, it really, you know, it concerned me. Because I know that Jared made, he was concerned you know, and, 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 it, it, and, it, and it hurt my heart, you know, and I'd like, you know, it's really easy to want to blame people. That's the first thing you do. You know, it's the first thing I wanted to do, you know. Um, 
But it was really more, you know, I think that I would have been able to understand this more had I been contacted, had I been told by this owner, I am so sorry, had I been, like, given some kind of grief support. And, there, mm-hmm. and, and you know, what really bothered me is that, you know, I realized that nobody was going to talk to me, but I knew that he was a board member of the Sober Living Network, and they blew me off nine times. So it was mm-hmm. almost like, oh, really, you're going to try to put baby in a corner? Okay, you obviously don't know me. And so it was from that moment on that I, you know, uh, you know, I decided to stand up not just for Jared, but for everybody else who's been in Jared's shoes and for every mother that is standing in my shoes that, 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 that cries at night, that, that, that for every mother, for, for every birthday for the past 10 years, Kenneth, I've been so sad. Um, it's so close to Mother's Day because he was like, you know, um, I had Mother's Day for, you know, two years. She was because he made me a mother. And for years, I couldn't handle this week, Mother's Day, Jared's birthday. And when you called me and you asked me to appear on your program, I made a conscious effort to do it today on his mm-hmm. birthday. And it's absolutely the absolute best birthday we've ever had. And I want to thank you so much for allowing me to celebrate his life and to share his story and to allow me to sort of spill my heart out to the world. I know that there are people that are listening right now. And if you, I, I really want to, I want to hear from you. If you've had a bad experience in sober living, I need to hear from you. I need to hear from mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers. And I want to give you my direct email address. It's Wendy, with a Y, at Jared's Law. That's spelled J-A-R-R-O-D-S-L-A-W dot org. Please contact me because I so desperately want to share your story. While you're in the midst of despair, while you're in the midst of not knowing what to do, I want you to call me because I will advocate for you. I will find an attorney that understands And I'll tell you why they're going to understand, because I'm going to make them understand about the reality of the Mental Health Parity Act. I'm going to get in, I'm going to get, I'm going to get attorneys interested in challenging this federal government. You make me have insurance? Okay. Well, then I'm going to hold you guys and I'm going to hold your feet to the fire. We're not, don't you tell me, judge, don't you send my child down some 12-step meeting road, because that's illegal. That's not going to get paid for by Obamacare. So really and truly, I just, like I say, you know, and I'm sure as most people know in this world, shit doesn't get done until you're sued. And right now, I think that, you know, this is, this goes sort of beyond putting, you know, uh, you know laying it on the government's uh, feet, which it really needs to be. It, it, really, it's, it really is bigger than that. It's calling bullshit. It's calling bullshit. Because you know who's going to call bullshit first? And then it, and that's when everything's going to change. Insurance companies, they're already poised for a lawsuit. They're already going, fuck you. You know mm-hmm, why? Mm-hmm. They know 
30, the 28-day program, hey, no, that doesn't work. 90-day doesn't even work unless after that 90 days you're introduced to not a 12-step avenue with sober living. You're introduced to pharmacological support. You're introduced to vocational support. You're introduced to behavioral therapy support. Things that work. Things that can Mm -hmm. help Mm -hmm. you. You know, I'm sorry, sitting around in, you know, a 12-step meeting, you know, wah, wah, wah. I mean, like I said, I've been there. But I will tell you one thing. You know, when I was there, it was very, very interesting. You know, when you go to Nar- Naranon, parents who, have, uh, who are struggling while their children are in, in um, their addiction, I remember going before Jared's death and going after Jared's death. And, you know, people go around the room and they say their name and their children's name and how many, how much time they have or how they're not having time. And, and this was actually a big, large room. And then it would get to me and I'd have to say, you know, this is Wendy and my son is Jared and he is six feet under. And I was the only one. And they'd look at me. And it's so... Oh man, it was it was so hard. But in not in spite of, in light of his life. I needed people to understand that just because Jared died didn't mean that anybody did the wrong thing. And that's sort of what takes people to 12-step programs and need that support. It's like, I'm doing something wrong. I need to fix it. I need to, you know, we had to really all step back. And, and so I was that person who had to step back and go, you know what? Even under the best of circumstances, even with the best kind of support, even with the best kind of this, that, and the other, guess what? It is not something that you can fix. And, and and to try to get people to really understand that, you know, and it is, it was hard for me to understand that my child wasn't mine, that he came through me. And what I'm going to learn out of that experience, it didn't end at his death. I've learned so much more, Kenneth, through his death. Um, my, I... Uh, you know, I, I can I can expound on that, but I just think it's so important that we need to recognize that this is not about somebody's moral character. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. a problem of addiction, it unfortunately, you know, it's the way our system works. It gets brought to the forefront when you do get caught by the cops for doing shit you shouldn't be doing. And you mm-hmm. got to take responsibility. Oh, and then you got to have your parents. You know, and parents sometimes will run in and they'll try to, like, throw a bunch of money at the problem and try to solve it and get them off of everything. I did mm-hmm. that with once, Jared. And then I realized, you know something? Just, you know what? Um, and, you know, I was sort of sold this bullshit. You didn't cause it. You didn't create it. You can't fix it. You know something? Yeah, that's true. But there was a whole lot more I should have been told. You know, oh, yeah. we were taught as parents to, you know, turn your back against your, you know, your, your, your addicted child and learn how to walk away from that in a healthy way. But, you know, I'm, I'm just going to be totally honest, you know. I, I, I really tried, um, 
But in the end, really and truly, I think that, you know, that's what we all are. We're just people just trying hard in this world to get through it. And, you know, like I say, you know, our children, um, they teach us things. They teach us things in life, and they teach us things in death. And if we don't allow our children who have passed on um, to not teach us, we stay imprisoned, and we stay angry, and we stay resentful. And I just don't think that that's healthy because, you know, um, I'll be in a full-fledged disease if I continue to live my life in disease. So I just choose to, you know, I put it out there, and I believe that for every, you know, for every action there's an equal reaction. And and I don't have a problem with, you know, standing up and, and saying, you know, this is what I believe. But I think right nowadays I think I have a little bit more on my side, and that is the mm-hmm. law. And I'm going to use that law against them. And I'm going to prove to them that other evidence-based treatment, such as what you were talking about, needs to be incorporated. Because what are we doing for heroin addicts? We're getting them suboxone. And then what? <laughs> and then what? It's like there's your, there's your answer to the problem, and then that's sort of cut off. We need to go further. We need to go farther. You know, we need to really, uh, we need, we, you know, we need to look at this as a, you know, uh, um, not as a, you know, I don't know, it's, I'm trying to find the right words. We need to, you know, we need to seize the opportunity. We really, we need it, we need it. And that's one of the things I've really been a firm believer in, you know, this is a teachable moment. And I'm not going mm-hmm. to allow this to not be a teachable moment. We shall not forget that every three days, the 747 comes crashing down to the ground, everybody dying. We cannot get that out of our heads. We should all be thinking that every day. Jesus Christ, 100 people died today, or cheese and rice. That's not acceptable to me. And until people say, that's not acceptable to me, and until then, and only then, will things get changed. Yeah, and that, that's, not really, really, that's not really that true. It's only until people get sued. And that's why, again, my advisory board is going to be comprised of many attorneys, civil rights attorneys, disability attorneys, but more importantly, attorneys that absolutely understand the, the oh, delicious uh, loophole that they have allowed us to go through. So I'll take them on through. I don't really think that they really understood what they were doing when they wrote this Mental Health Parity Act. Because guess what? They wrote it, and that's funny, they wrote it with these laws in place or, or over, you know, to encompass what in our world is the opposite. You know, here we have all the sober living and these treatments that are all 12-based, you know, blah, 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 blah. And now we are not going to pay for 12-step-based evidence. That's not evidence-based treatment. So there it is, you know, it's like, this is what we got to offer you people, but, oh, by the way, um, it's illegal. <laughs> We're not going to pay for that. So I really do believe yeah. that until people, you know, feel it in their own wallet and they start getting their, you know, their notices from the insurance company, go, I'm sorry we're not paying for this place because it's, you know, not evidence-based after they get their $30,000 bill. Okay, so I want to try to I want to try to prevent people from from having to go through that experience. I want people to demand that the insurance that they are required to purchase will cover them the right way. Do not accept nothing but evidence-based treatment. Do not sell your kids 
down a road. Do not hand in the bag of 12 steps and say, you know what, if you work these 12 steps, boy, oh, boy, I'll give you a cake every year. And, you know, I'm sorry. It just is not addressing the bigger problem. And the bigger problem well, is not just the person. It's, every, it's, it's the family. Mm-hmm. We all need to stand up as companies. The insurance companies went down this road in the 1990s, you know, um, before the mid-90s. They were being required to pay for unlimited amounts of addiction treatment. And, you know, they had people going through these treatments 30 and 40 times. And, you know, the insurance companies finally had to put their foot down and say, you're bleeding us dry for something that has absolutely no effect. It's extremely costly, and it's having no effect. They've already been down that road back then. That's why they cut off all this funding for, for addiction treatment in the mid-'90s. They said, we're not going to pay for this crap if it has no effect. And, but they you know, have the, been all the, these years with their 30- and 90-day treatments. Oh, no, they put, they, they put huge limits. Oh, you, you have no idea what they were paying out before. You can check out the history of this. Well, you know what? I actually uh, did sometime. hear something that blew my mind. It was like, okay, we will pay for treatment from the hours of 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., but from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m., you're on your own, which is the time when you are needed to be the, you know, overseen the most. So, yeah, I think that, that sort of illustrates it. Yeah, you know, they've been trying their, you know, but now – they have legitimate right, and they are poisoning for a lawsuit. They're not going to pay for it anymore. They're losing money. And not only are oh, they losing not money, for it. No. people they, are they losing They already realized that they were losing so much money. I mean, that's when I was going through treatment. I went through treatment twice in the, in the mid-'90s. And, you know, I met these people who had been through 30 times. You know, these were, these were poor people. These were homeless people on Medicaid and things like that. And... Uh, or very poor people, and, you know, the, the insurance companies were at that point clamping down, and they said, okay, you get 30 days every two years. You don't get 30 days every 30 days. And they put those limits on of 30 days every two years. Right, it's like it a chiropractic been, limit. It had been mm-hmm. unlimited before that, and they knew it wasn't working because they saw these same people going through over and over and over again. They said, we can't give you $30,000 every month, 12 months out of the year, 10 years in a row. Right, but, if we, but, but as a result, though, of the Affordable Care Act and, you know, the uh, American of Disabilities Act of 2008, oh, yes, they have had, you know, that forced them into a place where they had to. They had no choice. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. had to. Well, now... They're demanding evidence-based treatment, yeah. Right. Now it's all about evidence-based treatment. And I can't tell you many, how many people are like, what is that? Jeez, you know, it's like, yeah, we're so, you know, as a society, we're so wanting that easy fix. You know, we don't really want to, like, you know, it's like, again, it's like, I don't know, it's almost like that, 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 that uh, concept of 
And, and I was there once. I remember getting off the plane with my daughter and driving her to this Utah rehab facility and thinking, I'm going to, and it was sad, I was like, I'm going to drop her off. And I thought to myself, what am I dropping her off? And, you know, and, but I knew that it was more than just dropping her off. There was going to be, you know, con, you know, intense therapy with, you know, that included me. Well, you know what? Back in 1999, when I was dealing with that, or 97, 98, 99, when I was doing that, I'm sure going to mess. Guess what? I had to pay for it out of my pocket. Because mm-hmm. for whatever reason, Blue Shield said to me at the time, oh, gee, we don't pay for that shit. So here I was. I had to come up with six grand a month. Now, at that time, and people should know this, by the way, if you have a child that's under the age of 18 years old, and if you have a child at school age who has a drug problem, your school district has a responsibility and a legal obligation to find transition, transitional schooling slash housing for your child. You know, you know, whereas I knew at the time, I was told, well, yeah, you've got to spend $5,000 for an advocate to get you there. But I didn't know that at the time, so here I was, you know, having to, I don't know how I did it, but I did. And it was, it, it, it was so overwhelming. But, you know, now then things changed, and now people, you know, what I realized at the time is that, you know, they didn't pay for mine, but, you know, but for, you know, uh, Jeremy down the street, they've paid for him to go to treatment 15 times. You know, so mm-hmm. things in 10 years have gone really from one extreme to the other. And truth be told, knowledge is power. And what I just want to do is empower people with the knowledge that I have come upon. And, um, and I really do believe that this is, what do we call it? Let's call it the magic bullet. I'd also like to call it, let's say, a Masters and Johnson move. It's like, you know, it's huge. Okay? It is groundbreaking. And the groundbreaking reality is we've got to do it differently because, you know, you know I guess, I don't know, Everybody knows how to screw, but, you know, not everybody knows how to orgasm, okay? That was the Masters and Johnson theory. Because they didn't Mm. know about it. Why? Because of shame and guilt and what society thought at that time. Well, things have changed. Things have changed seriously big time. You know, it is 1984, like George Orwell said. You know, we are not speaking to other people. You know, we are using our brains to communicate to people. So, I mean, but, you know, with that comes, you know, this really cool um, advent of this invention of the Internet. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, this is no longer, you know, th- you know, when you and I were young, things were so different. Um, the information that we got was spoon-fed by the government, sanitized. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Ah, things have changed. Thank God for Google. And so, you know, it's almost like you can call people on their bullshit, you know, 
And, that, and that's what I mm-hmm. choose to do. It's so funny, you know, it's like the sober living homeowner Rick Schoonover. You know, it's like, don't be a dumbass. You know, I've got you on, on, I've got you on a deposition saying I was your sponsor, and here you are on a camera saying I wasn't. You know, there's this thing called a video camera nowadays. You know, and, and I think that that's really what's mm-hmm. super important nowadays is that, is that you have data to support the facts. I've always been a big believer of data to support the facts. So for me mm-hmm. to be, you know, like standing here and them trying to sell a bag of supposed data that, that, that facts don't support, and they want me to give them $30,000 a month in my own pocket. Let's say if I didn't have insurance, you know, but now everybody has to. Well, what about all the people that didn't have insurance? And that's why I get phone calls from people who are in tears. I swear to God, they go to their kid's funeral, and within two months, they are being evicted because of a foreclosure. And that's got to stop. Because what's happening is the insurance companies, you know what, they're taking advantage. They're taking advantage of the system. So what we need to do is we need to sort of like, I don't know, it's called, you know, Wag the dog's tail. Okay, we need to go on the other side, and 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 I think that really just sort of comes down to, you know, really it is, you know, it's called fail safe. Why do we call that? What is a fail safe? It's something that's put in place so people don't die mm-hmm. <laughs> when you're dealing with people's lives, and there's just not enough fail safes. However, you look on the opposite end of the spectrum, such as harm reduction, you have a whole different agenda there. And that's what's mm. really important, that we need to look at that. There is not this, you know, Bill W., okay, and his, and his theology um, was established in 1930. Mm-hmm. What year are we in? We're in 2014. Come on now. Are we that fucking stupid that we're going to subscribe to something that was, you know, presented in the 1930s as gospel? And, you know, yeah, I can go on and rant about the bullshit, but you know what? Bottom line is, as many people around, many people in this world are sheeps, okay? They'll jump off. I'm a leader, always been a leader, and will stand out and advocate for every single mother that calls me. Because I will hold mm-hmm. their feet to the fire. Like Loma Linda University, I just got a call the other day. Loma Linda University, one of the best places. If I were in a car accident, that's where I would want to be airlifted to, one of the best facilities in the world. Well, they misstepped. And, again, I, I'm watching them, you know, just do this like, oh, Jesus, we're waiting for the, you know, you know let's just shut up and let's just stonewall until the statute of limitations, you know, ends. Well, you know, I'm a mother that 36 hours prior to the statute of limitations was Jared's wrongful death. Oh, I just whipped something up. And it's sort of funny where the beginning was. Here I was, this mother who was in tears and crying, and it was a whining complaint. I guess they call them complaints. I was complaining. It was a whining complaint. And it really, really, you know, it got me in. But you know what happened with me, and you know what really empowered me, is that I was in a courtroom in Van Nuys, California, okay, the armpit of the United States of America. And I was dealing with a pretty much uh, an old codger of a judge. But because I was representing myself, I was given a lot of leeway. And I remember I, the first attorney that I was up against, 
I mean, I did his research, I Googled him, and it blew my mind because here was this guy who was running on a platform, which was, you bar owners that overpour drinks and you put, and then people go on the road and cause an accident, kill somebody, you bartenders are responsible. So that was his platform, and he was representing the sober living guy, right? So I, I remember, you know, talking to him, you know, just in the very beginning, you know, it's like, you know, just introducing myself. I was trying to be, uh, you know, a normal human being. First words out of his mouth, it's your fault, Jared's dead. And furthermore, I've heard that your daughter has an addiction. I was like, really? She's Louise, shame, shame, guilt, guilt. What was really beautiful about that is we ended up going into the judges' chambers, and the first thing I said was, uh, first and foremost, I need to just make, it aware, make you aware of the fact that this is what this, this man said to me, and that's improper. And it sort of began my relationship with the judge. And in his entire, um, entire time on the bench, this judge, and he's in his 70s, Never, ever in the history in his courtroom had he allowed somebody to go to a fifth amended complaint, which means that I'd go on in there and I'd make my complaint, and then the other side would say, no, 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 no. And then I'd go and I'd say, oh, yeah, well, blah, 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 blah. And then they'd go, no, 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 five times he allowed me to do it. And I prevailed because I proved duty and breach of duty, and it was real simple, you know. It's real simple. You know, it's not that difficult. But I will tell you, that in the whole process of that journey, I'll never forget looking and talking to this judge who said, you know, Wendy, I really think you should just get behind something like, uh, you know how those kids, they get caught up in the cords with the Venetian blinds. I really think that's the avenue you should take. And I'm like, are you serious? That's called a product defect. So I was, like, so empowered to be able to, like, you know, converse with a judge and tell that judge what I felt. And he'd say to me, Wendy, you don't know the jury. They're going to leave you feeling hollow. And, you know, I said, I don't care. As long as I could stand up after it's all said and done and look up in that sky and say, you know what, Jared? I did everything I could do. And I did. And in the end, I did prevail. I did prevail. And, 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 you know, I just, you know, again, it's not about winning and losing. Nothing brings your child back. But it began the journey of me being extremely comfortable in calling people on their shit, which I never really had a problem before. But, you know, seriously. But, you know, you have to be careful in this day and age. When you, when you throw a bomb, expect to have it come back. And that's sort of the nice thing about this is knowledge is power. I have all this knowledge. There's nobody that's going to be able to dispute the truth. But the truth is is that, you know what, I'd say out of um, all the congressmen, I would have to say 98% of them, they do not know anything about this. So how can they represent their constituents? How can they answer Mm -hmm. their questions? They won't be able to, which is one of the reasons I'd really like to get a hold of Jeff Skoll. Jeff Skoll is one of these real brilliant guys. He was a part um, owner of eBay, one of the biggest mm-hmm. you know, billionaires in the world. And he took all his money, and he decided that he was going to create this place called Participant Media. I think it's brilliant. What a brilliant platform it is. It's where 
he does documentaries where he presents a problem, and he asks that the audience, which is, you know, us Americans, we respond with our input, our solutions to that problem. And I really think that that's something important. And I've been, in, I've been trying to get in touch with him to see. You know, he was that uh, same man who did the uh, whole expose on the Japanese dolphins being murdered. And guess what? That shit stopped immediately. Bing. Bang. Boom. So it's going to be people like Jeff Skoll who's going to be able to stand up and say, we've got a big motherfucking problem, and this is what it is, and this is what the law says, and this is what our issues are, and how do we as a society want to fix this? Because I don't trust our politicians. I don't trust congressmen. They're 